Hey everybody, I'm Micah Rich. And I'm Olivia Kane. And welcome to the Weekly Typographic. A podcast where we discuss our favorite type and design news from the week. Hi, Olivia. Hey, Micah. How the heck are you doing? I'm doing good. Just love that we just pretend like we just entered this call together. After I know chatting. we need a different intro because we literally talk for like 40 minutes and then say, hey, how you doing? I know, but it's good. Conversational in a moment of transition right now in my life, mm-hmm. which is exciting. My last day at JKR was on Friday last week. So a week ago from when this publishes. Very bittersweet. I had a really great team there, but I will be starting a new job next week at a small little studio called Thought Matter. They do brand identities for social impact and nonprofits and New York City organizations. It's a super small team. I think it's like 20-ish people at the company. So yeah, it's new directions for me and hopefully I'll have lots more to report on in that kind of world. Moving out, moving up. That's my friend out here thanks proud of you ah thank you yeah i'll be a senior designer i'll be mentoring people oh my gosh i want to hear all about that next time i think the world does too wild well i wonder if your mentees are already listening oh gosh i hope not no pressure it's It's so funny whenever someone's like i listen to your podcast my full body turns red and i'm like oh my (laughs) god no why would you do that oh that's fair (laughs) But, you know, I got to just, like, embrace it. I like what I do. Other people can like it, too. It's okay. <laughs> but, like, when we have this conversation, no one's here. So, like, I don't imagine people. I know. Like, I know. Listening it's great. It. It's half of why it's so easy because it feels like it's just us chatting. Exactly. Well, Micah, we got a fun nerd alert coming later. I teased it a little bit to you earlier uh, in this conversation, but... We will be talking about the history of point sizing, specifically this piece of history that lived on for actually like centuries, but we don't talk about anymore, is that point sizes used to have names for their specific point size. So the way that we have names for clothing that we buy, like sizing is small, medium, large, extra large, instead of Mm. actually metric numbers, there was a similar system for point sizing back in the day, which is pretty interesting. And I bet you want to know what those names are because they are very fun. I bet one of them's Point Dexter. What's that? Point Dexter? You never heard the name Point Dexter? That was just a bad no. joke is what that was. Okay. No, I trust you. I'm pretty sure I didn't make it up. Anyway, <laughs> bad joke, I guess. That bombed. Good times. <laughs> Moving on. Okay, That's going to yeah, be a cool a- nerd alert. <laughs> I love when Micah tells a joke and I have no idea what the punchline is. This is not the first time this has happened on the podcast. <laughs> the first time ever. Keeping it fresh. So the first link, we've been sitting on for a couple weeks because it's bad? Oh, okay. Wait, oh, I mean, sorry. There's like more to it than that. <laughs> but now we know Micah's opinion on the situation. <laughs> All right, the first link is a UK brand that we are fairly certain is pronounced Hermes, which is like a courier service. Rebrands as Every, I probably, hopefully that's how you pronounce that, with 194,481 different logos. I could not hate this more. Tell us more, Olivia. Okay, 
if you just stopped there, I wouldn't necessarily be mad at the project. I don't really have that much actually against the concept. It's just I have big issues with the execution, man. The execution <laughs> concerns me. <laughs> so this is a project done by Monotype and Super Union. I think actually this might be a little polarizing. I think some people really like this and they love that every time you write something with this typeface, it randomizes the style of the typeface. Like literally the styles of a letter H could range from like a high contrast sans serif to like a weird bubbly thing. All the type styles of every single letter are just so differed. And there's nothing else like this before. So I think in that way, it's kind of interesting. And so the logo itself there's a bunch of different combinations because in this typeface that Monotype developed, I think with some people that are familiar with generative work, an innovative generative tool was designed so this typeface can have just like really randomized letter forms. I don't know if I need to see a slab serif E next to a comic sans looking V next to like a reverse contrast R next to like a very normal looking I. That's basically what these look like. You should take a look at the project if you haven't. I just don't enjoy it. I don't enjoy looking at it. But what do you think? Why are you so mad about it? (laughs) Maybe mad isn't the right adjective. But there's a couple things that annoy me. One, same thing. It looks bad. And it's random. (laughs) So it's going to look bad repeatedly, but in many different ways. Yeah. The other thing is like the language here. It seems incorrect to me. I mean, we don't have all of the information. We don't, like, have access to the font file. But they keep describing it as variable font intelligence. Mm. And I'm like, oh, no, it's just contextual alternates. Yeah. It's been around, like, since 1971. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not new news. I mean, it is an interesting use for it that I could see if it looked good in the end, it would be cool. But also describing it that way is weird because so much variable font lingo is new that describing it that way, and it's it's not really intelligent. I just made a font like this, and it's not smart. You have to code it. You yeah, literally have to yeah. say like, hey, if these things are next to each other, switch it out with a third thing. Like there's no intelligence. Yeah. I mean, I could be missing some detail here that they aren't describing but i doubt it it doesn't seem like it i almost just feel like they're using open type alternates to an extreme level just for the sake of being different yeah (laughs) they spit it out and they were like "Eh, let's go with it i don't know you can't look at that and be like oh yeah this looks great i don't know yeah okay so there's an example in the middle of this article where there's a poster Uh, where it says FAQ. It's like an animated one, so you get to it if you watch it for a while. And FAQ is like duct tape, right? And it's animated, and that's neat. Yeah. I could see this concept in that way being a good execution. Like, A, the duct tape is related, so that's actually smart usage of that as like a metaphor. It's cool. Yeah. But in that one instance, it feels intentional, and every other instance, it just feels random. Yeah, I agree. That was the one piece I was like, this is cool, but where is this anywhere else? Also, the way they're displaying this and all the media surrounding this rebrand, like they show many examples of the typeface in use. They show the PR assets basically of like, here's this huge typeface we made here, all the letter forms in the typeface. But isolated, maybe you're walking down the street, you see like one truck go by 
And the system at large, this large typographic system that is being described is like not ever going to be seen in a complete way. You're seeing one small snippet of the system and it's all just going to always look random. Mm -hmm. The way that like maybe when you see it all together, it feels like, oh, the chaos like has meaning because it's part of an identity. But likely when you're interacting with this brand, you're going to be interacting with like one small piece. And I don't know, it's not like the website for the New York Times where if, I'm not saying they should do this, but if they did this and there were headlines that use this and maybe there was other components where it felt like you were seeing a system at play because you were like viewing a system, maybe it would make more sense. But I don't know. I just, I don't know. Yeah. It's tough. Womp womp. Womp womp. But fun to talk about. <laughs> so... I always worry when we have these strong opinions about stuff that somebody from Super Union is going to email us and be like, you guys don't know what you're talking about. There's X, Y, Z. And uh, so far that hasn't happened. That's <laughs> uh -huh. true. I do think Oliver Schundorfer, he actually liked this example and he showed it in his pairing type. So for some people, it's for them. It's definitely sure. not for us, sure. you yeah. know? All right. Next article. All about clay morphism guys i don't know if everyone remembers but one of our first podcasts on season two of the weekly typographic was about what new morphism was so i don't know maybe we have to start talking about some clay morphism this I article okay I, yeah i'm excited to hear your thoughts because like i don't interact with this but this article is from smashing magazine and it first begins to talk about the evolution of skewmorphism and then how we all went to flat design. Then how new morphism became like a fun thing that user interface designers were playing around with, but wasn't actually a feasible UI system because it wasn't great for accessibility and it didn't allow for much variety. Like it, new morphism was like a very monotoned version of skewmorphism, super elegant. Clay morphism is like we are designing user interfaces with objects and buttons that are really, really round and use shadows and highlights in a specific way that actually creates things that kind of look like clay. And the difference between clay morphism and new morphism is that you can use like background colors and have color contrast within the design, which you couldn't have in new morphism because new morphism was like all one tone. So they're like, is this going to stay? Because it's actually more feasible than new morphism, but it does look a little bit like a Wallace and Gromit. <laughs> user interface i don't insult wallace and gromit all right wow i want to hear i think they actually give some interesting examples of ways to use clay morphism amongst flat design but i want to hear your opinions on this okay it's not even my old man grumpiness is not even like it's ugly it's not it's playful it's cute and i love clay i've always loved clay clay's great Aww. In fact, I'm a huge fan of Wallace and Gromit, which isn't totally off the top. Like, it's mentioned in this article. Yeah. I feel like it has all of the same problems as new morphism. Really? Yeah, you can have different colors where mostly in new morphism you didn't. Uh -huh. But it's the same confusion of depth and attention. Mm, yeah. Explain. Anybody who wants to be playing with clay, half of these examples, everything is illustrated mm -hmm. in a couple examples it's just like one or two elements and in that way it could potentially be a good way to draw attention to a thing if it isn't everything and then in a lot of the examples they're using it on the wrong things like it doesn't make sense 
in the context of like like so much of skeuomorphism is using real world textures and lighting to mimic real things, right? Mm -hmm. Which this is that. It is just mimicking one thing. Like it's clay. So it's just skeuomorphism with clay. Mm -hmm. Skeuomorphism was around long enough that designers started getting good at using the real world stuff to call attention to the right things. Whereas these new variations are just like, wow, I realized I can make shadows that make things look 3D and 3D is cool. So like, I'm going to put it on whatever. Yeah. And it messes with the depth and attention. That is the point of good design. I feel you on that one for sure. Like, I think when we looked into the skeuomorphism nerd alert, guys, if you want to listen to that, it's all the way back from 2020. Skeuomorphism itself is like a concept that has been existing for centuries because skeuomorphism, like, yes, you see it in design, but skeuomorphism was also plastic cutlery that has ridges in it to mimic metal cutlery. It's all things that are meant to mimic a counterpart that exists before it. It's like the whole idea of wood paneled cars was to mimic like horse and buggies. So I think there's actually a lot more conceptual weight in skeuomorphism. And that's why it was so impactful in UI design. And that's why it made Apple seem so user-friendly. It really impacted people's way of thinking when they were viewing interfaces, I think. Yeah. Whereas I don't know if this really does. iPhone is such an interesting example in the history of skeuomorphism because it was almost necessary because people were so not used to interacting with touching a digital screen that that metaphor taught people how to use it. Yes. And that's not true for the rest of these things that came after. Exactly. And I think this would be adorable on a children's app. Yeah. (laughs) If it makes sense for the branding, I love it. It's great. And I've seen it on like a couple startups and whatever. Like um, pitch.com was like all about this kind of style for a while. A lot of this is just mimicking startups. Like some startup has creative Mm -hmm. branding that uses some elements of this and then everybody just mimics that and goes too far with it for sure i definitely feel that but glad to get your insightful insightful brain and words on this i was curious i feel like such an old man in all of these i'm just like (laughs) constantly telling people to get off my lawn (laughs) no i love it and if once we see an excellent example of claymorphism definitely worth worth sharing but good to have that on the radar in the meantime our next article is about a typeface that captures the dyslexic reading experience. So there's a new typeface called Dyslexic Font. It's created by Switzerland-based illustrator Rokio Eggio. <laughs> Cannot, I'm bad Excellent with that. attempt, who knows? Attempt. And Indian designer Pranav Bardwaj. It's a font that is not trying to cater towards dyslexic people, which I think is something we've seen before, but instead is trying to actually raise awareness to what it's like to be reading with dyslexia. And the original illustrator that prompted this project, Rokio Eggio, who I follow on Instagram, I'm a big fan of their work. They did it in honor of International Dyslexia Day and being like, this disorder does not actually affect your general intelligence. It's just how you're like reading and interpreting words and symbols and was to like bring just awareness to it. And it's interesting the way the font is designed, the D's backwards, like letters are on angles. I actually think it has definitely its own personality and I feel like it could be used for things besides like dyslexia awareness. There's Mm -hmm. 
you know, I think the way that things are purposely off kilter, purposely backwards, you can imagine different applications for this and it's pretty playful. I think it's cool that it was initiated by being like, hey, no one, this is a thing that so affects so many people. What does it look like for other people to actually see what the world looks like in these eyes? And I think that's an interesting proposition for a project. You know what? I completely agree. Yeah. I definitely didn't pick up on first read that that was the intention of this project. And so I was a little confused. And once you actually get into reading what they are saying about it and what their thoughts were behind it, it's super interesting. There's a paragraph in the middle where she is referring to her own dyslexia for herself as a superpower. Mm-hmm. I like that twist. I have been learning a lot about ADHD in the last year, and a lot of people refer to it in a similar kind of tone. And it's a really empowering twist when it's something that you have been struggling with. And she was saying she didn't know that she had it until she was 24. And so to like oh, wow. go through a lot of life not understanding why something is hard or different or like why it feels different for you than anybody else to take that and turn it into an empowering thing is pretty baller. I respect that. And she considers it a superpower for herself because it gave her like a way of looking at language as graphics yeah, and illustration. And they're like, that's neat. That's such a neat way of thinking about it that I think some of us can appreciate Especially if you're like designing letter forms, you can probably potentially appreciate some part of that perspective. But it's just neat. It's just cool to read about. This is actually a great perspective. Yeah. You can download the font from the Illustrator's website. And yeah, try it out if you want to see what that's like. We finally got Micah on board with the link this week. So I call it a success. (laughs) (laughs) Yep, 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 yep. It's also basically like super similar to Futura, so I am into it. Yeah. I want to use it on a children's book that has nothing to do with dyslexia. I totally see what you're saying. Right. Definitely carries its own personality aside from the technical details it was created with. All right. Second to last link, kind of, I won't talk too much about the last link, is from Creative Lives in Progress, and it is titled Practice is Key. We chat typography, freelancing, and finances with graphic designer Mohammed Smod. So Mohammed is a graphic designer from London with a focus on typography and brand identity design. Says they graduated in 2020. They were not interested in a full-time role, so then they moved to work as a freelancer. So this is like a fairly recent graduate. Like two years out of school. Since then, they have worked with crazy cool clients, including Nike, and has worked on like pretty cool social impact projects with Nike and other clients. And the interview questions are actually really similar to the interview questions we have on our interviews. Yeah. So I definitely really appreciate it. It was very much like, what were some challenges? What were some highlights? His work is very unique. It feels honestly like a 2020 graduate's exploration in typography. Like they're pushing boundaries in ways that we are seeing within typography these days, but it definitely feels unique to them. It doesn't feel derivative or anything like that. So it's definitely cool to check out and take a look. I just think it's an interesting perspective too on someone that really had faith in themselves and their work instead of trying to be working for an employer. And he gets really into it talking about, you know, financial stability being kind of scary and what advice he has for people that also want to take the risk, but also the rewards. Like it's a high risk, high reward situation. And then also talking about how social media can really play an impact 
has like a very positive outlook on social media, which is always interesting to hear. And I get it. As designers, we can get so many more eyeballs on our work than I think we used to even 10, 20 years ago because of social media platforms. And like, if you really want to work in a specific area, you just continue producing content. And that's that hustle energy that you probably have when you're two years into your career that maybe Mike and I are like, oh yeah, that seems like work. But even mentioning TikTok as a platform for emerging creatives to get visibility, I think is very real and feels like a nice young person's perspective on advice (laughs) for landing cool clients and doing work that they're passionate about. Well put. I don't have a ton to say about this other than I, well, two things. One, I'm always surprised at the spread that Nike has. It seems like so many people do interesting projects for Nike. And I'm always like, what is Nike doing? Nike's just doing a little bit of everything out in the world. That's always surprising to me. It's funny. I feel like I only see Nike projects on designers' portfolios. I feel like I rarely see this variety of Nike projects when I'm living my existence. Right. (laughs) You know, I'm not like a big shoe person, so I don't care about Nikes that much. And I certainly don't exercise ever. I'm... (laughs) You know, run a font foundry. So uh, <laughs> Nike is not a huge part of my life. But you're right. I see shoes in a store and then every other cool designer is like, oh, yeah, I did this really revolutionary, interesting, totally out of the box thing for Nike. And it's like, what the heck? That's cool. What? I am so with you on that. I'm like, where are these? Like, they're like cool community minded. I think this Nike project was helping underrepresented communities convert gym spaces to use for more kids play areas. And I'm like, this is so cool. I don't know. But I totally agree. I just see the Nike store and the ads occasionally. That's awesome for them. But the other thing that I want to mention is I just think the work here is interesting in that some of it feels so traditional and old-fashioned in a really respectable way Mm -hmm. a lot of the grids and colors and it seems like traditionally good classic swiss graphic design kind of thing and then at the same time the next one that you see is totally weird and off and new and i guess that i'm just reiterating what you were talking about about very unique style and it's neat to me that it's like combining elements of vintage and also super modern at the same time in a way that feels like that's just how they do it not in a weird i guess you said derivative i agree yeah so it's pretty freaking cool i love to see it cool new desire to follow if you want some typographic inspiration all right our final link i'm just gonna gloss over which is funny because it's a (laughs) glossary It's from Paratype, which I believe is a foundry over on the West Coast. It's just a really great encyclopedia. So I was researching the history of type point size names. There's barely anything. I mean, I'm going to just say it here. Most of the information I got was from Wikipedia. But this was like the only accredited source that I felt like was from a legit place that had some of these fun names in there. And there's like lots of really obscure type terms that I've never even heard before. And I just feel like our audience will enjoy it and learn something new and they can send it to their other type nerd friends and everyone can get something out of it. Like it. All right, nerd alert. Here we go. Try to make it a quickie, but a goodie. Okay, typesizing history, guys. Seems like we all take 
type sizes for granted a little bit. I'm going to call us out on that because (laughs) point sizes definitely come back. You have to think about the existence of the point. We're not going to talk about how people created the measurement for the point. That's like some super boring shit. But once upon a time, someone had to decide this is the metric we're going to use to measure type. And actually, there was like a bunch of different standards. There was French points. There was the Fournier point. There was different kinds of French points. And there's different kinds of points from Italy. Then there was the American points. So point sizes in general were very varied. That's the existence of sizing at its main core. But actually... After point sizes were addressed and systems were created, there was a unified naming system for point sizes. So I hinted that earlier, but there was a name for every point size. So I'm going to give us a few. There's actually like a bunch out there. You should definitely Google traditional point size names because there were different names in German and in Dutch and in French. The one we're going to talk about is the American system. So that was a British and American printers were using this system. And this was a system that was developed in the 16th century and pretty much used for 400 years, more or less, which I think is pretty crazy. So a few examples of these type names. Five-point type was named Pearl. Five-and-a-half-point type, Agate. Six-point, Non-Pearl. Seven-point, Minion. Eight-point, Brevier. Nine-point's my favorite. Nine-point was called Bourgeois. Give me that bougie type is what I would say (laughs) if I was a printer. (laughs) 10 point was long primer, 11 point small pica, 12 point pica, 14 point English, 18 point great primer. There's a bunch more names for different systems that existed. Some British people had different names for five point than, you know, some English people, et cetera, et cetera. But that's like a general fun overview. I feel like Ruby was also a name for agate type. There was also like diamond. So the smaller types were called like precious little stones, like as if they were just like tiny little pieces that were hard to find amongst a whole newspaper or broadsheet. And a lot of these sizes were known for their uses. So for example, non-parel, which I think is six point, was actually used for reading columns of newspapers, which seems insane. That seems very small, but maybe six Six point was... Maybe it was different back in the day. Maybe six point was actually bigger than six point today because this was going on for 400 years. And every foundry, like there was slight variations on all these sizes, But people knew the name would produce a general size. And then the agate font, so agate type at 5.5 points, was used for statistical data or legal notices. And this was, like, really small. This was considered to be the smallest point size that can be printed on newsprint and remain legible. And I think, like, it was so small you could get 13 lines of this text in one inch. A great primer which was 18 points that I mentioned, was super large font size back in the day. It was actually used for printing English Bibles and other large format books. And it led to its other name as Bible text. But obviously no one's doing flashcards and memorizing these type names. But I've actually heard quite a few of these just looking at really old specimens for type. And I remember going back to our episode about how the Industrial Revolution revolutionized display type. The first sans serif that was developed by William Caslon debuted in 1816, and it was called Egyptian because that's what people were calling sans serif back then, and it was called 
English Egyptian, and English meant 14 points. So I think we can actually decode a little bit of type history by understanding that when you saw great primer black or pica black, like that actually had to do with the design was designed for a specific size. And I also recalled that the open source type family, the IMFL family that's on Google Fonts. I've used it before. It just looks like pretty like distressed Roman type. They also use this system. So if you go on Google Fonts and type in IMFL, you'll see IMFL English, which is probably what the punches were cast at 14 points. And then IMFL Pica, right? It really comes together in the brain. These are some of my favorite fonts and or open source fonts in all of history, by the way. And it makes sense, too, because I was designing something where I wanted to mimic a newspaper from the year 1800. So I pulled out these fonts and I was like, what's the difference between IMFL English and IMFL Double Pica? In today's terms, I would say Double Pica feels like a display font and then English feels more like a text font because of the way that they're designed. English is 14 points. Double pica is larger than 14 points. I don't have the exact one here. But I feel like this was the earliest originations of designing a text font or a display font. People were literally recasting letters and adjusting them every time there was a new type size. So what just occurred to me too, I always was curious about the level of noise on these yes where some of them seem noisier for no discernible reason that i could understand yeah that suddenly makes sense if you're recreating a larger typeface there's going to be less noise because there's just more information there if you're trying to recreate a super tiny typeface there's going to be tons of noise yes exactly by noise i mean like bumpiness yeah, like roughness, imperfections. Yeah. You see it because I have them open in front of me. I am felt English is 14 points. I am felt Pica is 12 points. And the 12 points are just bulkier. They feel really rough around the edges. 14 points seems a little bit less rough around the edges. And then double Pica is like, okay, there's imperfections, but it feels pretty well established. And then there's also French canon, which I think was – quite large. I did research the French people had their own version of their type system. But I just think it's interesting that these are things that we have actually encountered. I think most type nerds have encountered and then haven't paid that much attention to because there's really no need to. But I think it's interesting to know about and I feel a little bit more informed when I see like really old specimens. For example, if you look like a Baskerville specimen, when John Baskerville designed his font, it was not called Baskerville. Like it's called Baskerville now because it's like based off of his font. Like his font was probably called English Roman, Double Pica Roman. Like he probably just had a bunch of different names that just applied to the sizes. And then you just knew they came from the Baskerville foundry. You literally identified type by these names back in the day because someone like John Baskerville doesn't have a catalog of Romans. He made his Roman. You can get it. You can not get it. But your options are the sizes. <laughs> That's cool. I'm glad you like this. I do. (laughs) I think there are designers that take these principles and put it into type that they're designing. I I know Oh No Fat Face, one of James Edmondson's fonts, has like a 24 point and a a 72 point, stuff like that. It's actually very deliberate on what size you're supposed to be using this type in, which I think is pretty unusual for contemporary type designers, but that comes from somewhere, you know? 
That's interesting. Yeah. I like it. I also feel more informed. I love that for both of us. (laughs) The only reason I got inspired to do this was when we did our Bringhurst episode many months ago, and I was talking about all my favorite Bringhurst facts, and then there was this little page that was like, typographic scale. Here are all the names of type, and I was like, how have I read this book six times and never knew that there was a name called a pearl or like nine points was bourgeois again. I think my favorite is Minion. My evil villain side loves that. <laughs> yeah. And that got me confused because I was like, there's like, isn't there like a Minion Pro? Like, isn't that a font? Oh, yeah. It actually used to be a font that I like used for my own branding once upon a time. Yeah. All of this comes from somewhere. If I have a series of pets, I think I'm going to name them after size names. Yeah, I like it. Are you going to have a series of pets or are we just going to have imaginary pets? Likely no, because I'm allergic to most pets, but <laughs> I can like just call it, hey, Pika, come over here, bourgeois, <laughs> pearl, diamond. Yeah, so you're right. They are cute names for pets. And it'd be like, like according it. to size, like the tiny right. little Yorkshire Terrier would be pearl and then the medium size would be English and then the large dog would be the double Pika. I guess the English could be like an English bulldog or something. Yes. Here for it. I like this. Great work. (laughs) Very informative, my friend. A genius as always. Thanks for being a great audience. And thanks to everyone else here for being a great audience. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff. Stay tuned. I think in the next month or two months, I don't know our plan, but you do. Uh, do. We have a bunch of cool interviews that are coming up. And a bunch of cool stuff we're going to be doing. So stay tuned, my friends, my nerdy type friends. Do-do-do-do. <laughs>